If you would, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 6 as we continue to work through this discourse of our Lord Jesus concerning Himself as the bread of life. This morning we'll be in John chapter 6 beginning in verse 41 and we'll read down through verse 58. John chapter 6 beginning in verse 41. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Therefore... The Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that, the one, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father... So he who eats me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. Now, we have in these words the teaching of Jesus, which he continued to give in Capernaum, that situation that arose after the feeding of the 5,000, Now, as we've been seeing here, that Jesus seized upon the fact that this crowd, which had followed him across the Sea of Galilee, followed him hoping to obtain bread. And Jesus seized upon this fact and therefore spoke to them as he did about bread. He took the opportunity to teach this crowd what was truly important, not the bread that perishes, but this bread that endures to eternal life. He declared to them in verse 33, the of the the bread of God, that it is that which came down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And he had told them that he himself is that bread of life in verse 35. And in our text this morning, we see that Jesus continued his teaching along these lines while the Jews all the while increased in their antagonism toward him. They were grumbling about what he had said there in verse 41. And by the time we get to verse 42, they are arguing among themselves. And so as we consider these verses this morning, we'll do so under two main headings. First, 
Understand your inability. Understand your inability. And secondly, eat the flesh of the Son of Man. Understand your inability. And eat the flesh of the Son of Man. So first of all, understand your inability, which is to say, understand that you, of yourself, are unable to come to Christ. You, of yourself, are unable to come to Christ. The Jews have heard what Jesus is saying about the bread of life, this bread that came down from heaven, and evidently they, they don't get it and they don't like it. They grumble because Jesus had said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. You find that in verse 41. Now, even though we don't find those precise words verbatim expressed by Jesus in what has come before in this chapter, nevertheless, those words are an apt summation of what Jesus had said, if you combine verse 33 with verse 35. He had said that he is the bread of life. He had said that that bread which gives life to the world has come down out of heaven. And so even though their quotation there in verse 41 is not verbatim what Jesus had seen, nevertheless, they are accurately synthesizing and understanding what Jesus has said about himself, and they don't like it. They thought, as it were, that they knew more about Jesus' origins than he himself did. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? These Galileans knew Joseph, they knew Mary, they knew that Jesus was a member of that family, the family of Joseph and Mary. And they thought that that was all there was to it, that in knowing that, they knew all that was to be known about the origins of Jesus. Jesus is part of this family. Certainly he must be the son of Joseph and the son of Mary. And this is part of the course for the ministry of Jesus. This is what the people of Nazareth thought as well. If you think back to Mark chapter 6, Jesus was teaching in the synagogue in Nazareth, and the people took offense at him. And they said, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter? Son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? That's Mark 6, 2 and 3. And so these, these Galileans, both these here in Capernaum and those in Nazareth and Mark 6, could not understand how a man could say and do such things as he did, especially a man whom they thought they knew. And as such, they only proved their ignorance of who Jesus truly was. Though, according to his human nature, he was, as Paul says in Romans 1, born of a descendant of David. Yet according to the divine nature, he is the eternal Son of God. And as to his divine person, he is the eternally begotten Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. These Jews did not know with whom they were dealing. They could see his miracles, but they could not see past the miracles to the identity to which those miracles pointed. They could hear the words of Jesus and they could hear his teachings, but they could not truly understand them. Jesus heard their grumbling. He told them to stop it. He said, do not grumble among yourselves. And then he directs their attention to something that lay below the surface, something which does not seem to have entered into their calculations in regard to thinking about Jesus, namely that they could not come to Jesus. They could not believe upon Jesus unless they had been specifically enabled to do so by God the Father. Jesus says to them and to us something of immense importance there in verses 44 and 45. No one can come to me 
unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now let's, let's focus in here for a bit on verses 44 and 45, and let's recognize four things specifically here. First of all, the inability, the exception clause, the manner of the drawing, and the result of the drawing. So these are kind of four sub-points, if you will. There's the inability, there's the exception clause, there's the manner of the drawing, and then the result of the drawing. And so first, the, the inability, the inability of people to come to Jesus. We see this in the opening words of verse 44. No one can come to me. Now, obviously the verse doesn't stop there. and Thank God it doesn't stop there. There's more to the picture than that, but let's stop there for just a moment and think about the weight of those words. Jesus says, no one can come to me, which is to say no one left to their own heart, their own will, their own inclinations can come to me. Well, why not? Someone may ask. Well, that's a good question. And the answer is that no one left to themselves, left to their own heart, left to their own will, left to their own inclinations, can come to Christ because no one under those conditions will come to Christ. People under those conditions cannot come because they will not come. Because they don't want to come. They have no desire to come. Why would they do something that they have no desire to do? They won't. And Jesus says, no one can come to me. And what Jesus says here is certainly the, the teaching of Scripture more broadly. This is the implication of Genesis 6-5. Spoken before the flood, then the Lord saw the wickedness of man uh, was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is the Lord's diagnosis of the situation before the flood, that every intent of the thoughts of the hearts of man was only evil continually. And if that is the case... And no one is going to be coming to Christ left to themselves. This is likewise the implication of Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And what is certainly implied in Genesis and Jeremiah is even more explicit. In passages like Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. This is Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They've committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And Paul's quotation of that passage, Paul pulls from Psalm 14 or Psalm 53 uh, in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, and he makes it clear just how wicked we are in ourselves. Paul says there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no, uh, no one who does good. There is not even one. Paul says there's no one who seeks for God. This is because of our corrupted nature. By virtue of being fallen in Adam, we naturally love sin and darkness and do not want to come to the light. Therefore, we do not come to the light. Such is our innate, inborn perversity. This is what it means to be, by nature, a child of wrath, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.3. Jesus, our Lord, says, No one 
can come to me. But again, thank God, that's not all that Jesus said. He didn't stop there. There is an exception clause, a blessed exception. No one can come to me unless, unless what? Unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to Christ unless they are drawn by the Father. This is the way in which God the Father gives a people to Christ. We saw last week up in verse 37 how all of those whom the Father gives to the Son will come to him. That the one who comes to him, Christ will not cast out. And this is the way that the Father gives them to the Son. He draws them. Now what does this mean? How does God draw people to Christ? Well, this is not done by forcing the unwilling to come against their wills, but rather it is done by changing the unwilling so that they are, in fact, made willing, so that they now desire to come. Formerly, they had no desire to go to Christ, but now their hearts and their wills are changed so that they are made willing. They want to come. This is what we call regeneration or the new birth. By the working of the Holy Spirit, the heart that had been dead and lost in sin and in love with sin and in enmity with God is now made alive. Those who had once despised the ways of God and the salvation that is offered in Jesus Christ now see the gospel of Jesus Christ as the most precious treasure imaginable. And therefore, it is not without cause that Jesus described once the kingdom of heaven as like a treasure in a field. It was like its treasure that was buried there. And a man found the treasure. And then what did he do? Jesus said that in his joy he went and sold all he had to go and buy the field. Again, he said the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking for fine pearls. And when he found a pearl of great value, he sold all that he had and bought it. This is is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It is likened to these people who found something of great value, who recognized the great value, and then did everything that was in their power to obtain that thing of great value. They willingly and wholeheartedly pursued that which was of great value, and they did so joyfully. Not because someone was was twisting their arm into it, but because they deeply desired to do it. This is exactly how David prophesied that it would be when he spoke of our Lord Jesus Christ in Psalm 110, verse 3. And he said, Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. David says, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. And so then we need to step back and ask, by what means does the Holy Spirit work to to bring this regeneration, this new birth, so that those who had been unwilling to come to Christ now willingly come to him and trust in him? How How does the Holy Spirit do this? What does God the Father do? How does this happen? What brings the change? Well, notice in verse 45 the manner of the drawing. The manner of the drawing. Jesus describes there the way in which God the Father draws people to himself. He says, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. God the Father draws people to Christ. How does he draw them? He draws them by teaching. And they shall all be taught of God is a quotation of Isaiah 54, 13, that chapter that we read together earlier this morning. Isaiah 54, 13 says, All your sons will be taught of the Lord, and the well-being of your sons will be great. 
Now, Isaiah 54 is one of those great prophetic passages in which the Lord promises restoration for his people. Now, being Isaiah chapter 54, it obviously follows right after Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a chapter well-known, the suffering servant. And that suffering servant is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. And Isaiah 54 immediately precedes Isaiah 55. Another marvelous chapter, well-known for its merciful declarations. It's in Isaiah 55 that we find those words, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. It's also in Isaiah 55 that we find those words, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. It's Isaiah 55 verses 6 and 7. And so the point is sandwiched right in there between Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, and these merciful declarations in Isaiah 55, you have Isaiah 54, a passage that speaks of the restoration of God's people in which we read, all your sons will be taught of the Lord and the well-being of your sons will be great. God is promising restoration, and he says, all your sons will be taught of the Lord. Now, certainly this doesn't mean all ethnic Israelites will be taught of the Lord. I think if we look just at the context in which Jesus is quoting this in John chapter 6, it becomes clear that he's quoting this clearly to a bunch of people who are not taught of the Lord. But what it does mean is that all true Israelites, all who were to be saved, will be taught of the Lord. And if you're thinking in these terms, you you may also think to to Jeremiah chapter 31, that famous passage in which the new covenant is is prophesied. And Jeremiah 31, 34 says that they will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sins I will remember no more. Now, you have some some similar dynamics going on in both Isaiah 54 and Jeremiah 31. These are passages about the restoration of God's people. And specifically in Jeremiah 31, he's talking about the new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. And one of the marks of the new covenant would be their personal knowledge of the Lord. They would know the Lord. They would know him, ultimately, because they were taught by him, as, uh, as the parallel in Isaiah 54 points out. All your sons will be taught of the Lord. Jesus says that this is how people are drawn to him. They're drawn because they are taught by the Father. God the Father teaches those whom he has given to Christ. He teaches them by his word. For as we find in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Someone hears the word of Christ either by means of reading the Bible or by listening to a sermon, the proclamation of the word of God, or, or hearing the Bible read, or perhaps having someone explain and summarize the, the great truths of Scripture to them. And this is the way in which God draws people to Christ. He draws them by teaching. And they who are given to Christ learn what the Father teaches them. The Spirit gives them understanding of the word of God and brings with it the conviction of sin, and also the conviction of the truth of God's testimony in his word. And for all who truly learn from the Father, there is then an inevitable result. And so that's the final thing I wanted to to point out here in verse 45, is the result of the drawing. 
And so at the end of verse 45, Jesus says, Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Those who are given by the Father to Christ learn from the Father to come to Christ and thus are drawn by the Father to Christ. All of these things are, are tied together. Uh, as one expressed it years ago, he said, To be drawn or to learn of the Father is the same with being given of Him. Or at least they always go together. All that learn are given. All that are given learn. For it is said of both alike that they come to Christ. And so this great work is contrived and managed in such a wonderful manner that it is both God's acts and ours. It is first His in us, and then ours by Him. He draws and we go. He teaches and we learn. He gives us and we come to Christ. This is the inevitable result of being taught of God, of being drawn by the Father, because Jesus says that everyone who has heard and has learned from the Father comes to Him. And along with that, we see both here and uh, in verse 44, as well as above, up in verses 39 and 40, that those who are, who are given to Christ, those who are drawn to Christ and come to Christ, all are raised by Christ on the last day. It happens to all of them. So all of these things are tied together. So what does this mean? It means that we need to understand our inability. Understand that in and of yourself, apart from the grace of God, you are unable to do anything that is spiritually good. You are unable even to take the first step toward God. You're unable to come to Christ. This is because apart from the grace of God, as we've seen, we are all dead in sin. Again, Genesis 6, every intention of the thoughts of the heart is only evil continually. Now, in saying that, we need to be clear, though, that this does not mean that everyone being dead in sin is as wicked and as evil as they could be. We can look out into the world and see greater and lesser levels of evil that are perpetrated. I can certainly imagine some non-Christians whom I would prefer to have as a neighbor over other non-Christians. We, we understand there are uh, greater and lesser levels of evil that are perpetrated. And also this does not mean that, all, that people who are dead in sin are unable to do some things or even many things that are in one respect, outwardly good. Un ungodly people are, are sometimes charitable. Ungodly people are oftentimes very kind. Ungodly people sometimes avoid fornication and adultery and those kinds of things. And so we need to be clear here when we're talking about our inability to come to Christ, what we do mean and what we don't mean. And, and to that end, I think, I think the language of the Augsburg Confession was helpful when they said, it is also taught among us that man possesses some measure of freedom of the will, which enables him to live in an outwardly honorable life and to make choices among the things that reason comprehends. But without the grace, help, and activity of the Holy Spirit, man is not capable of making himself acceptable to God, of fearing and believing in God with his whole heart, or of expelling inborn evil lusts from his heart. This is accomplished by the Holy Spirit, who is given to us through the word of God, where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, natural man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God. The point that we're making is that when we're talking about our, uh, the fact that we are unable to come to Christ, we need to be clear that those who are dead in sin still make real choices. And some of those choices that they make are, in one sense, good as far as they go. I imagine that many of those Galileans to whom Jesus was speaking that day were 
in one respect, pretty decent Jewish men, outwardly speaking. Many of them maybe made at least a decent effort to follow the law of Moses. As such, they would have made better neighbors than those who didn't try to follow the law of Moses. The problem, though, is that you can do all of those things and more and still be on the way to hell. None of those things and nothing else that fallen men and women can do of themselves put them into God's favor. They cannot so much as come to Christ, they cannot so much as believe upon Christ unless they are given to him by the Father, drawn to him by the Father, and taught of the Father to come to him. And indeed, sometimes our natural ability at achieving these outwardly good things, sometimes this very thing is what keeps us away from Christ, isn't it? Sometimes we may think that we are good enough for God on our own apart from Christ. The people of the world think this way. I can remember years ago a conversation that I, that I had with a young woman, and she was just very adamant that just being a good person, that surely that ought to be enough, she thought. Not so. It's not so. We're not good enough for God. We're sinful, and we're not good enough in ourselves to come to Christ. People of the world think much like the ancient Jews. As Paul diagnosed the condition in Romans 10.3, when he said, not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Paul said that the Jews of his day were seeking to establish their own righteousness, trying to, to build up a righteousness for themselves so as to present themselves to God. And as such... It was keeping them from submitting to God's righteousness, God's way of righteousness through Christ. Fallen people might think that they are good enough for God and therefore attempt in pride to establish their own righteousness for God instead of coming to Christ. And they do this because they think that they have no need of Christ. And thus, instead of actually being helpful to us, this ability, so to speak, at doing things that are outwardly good can actually hinder us be harmful to our souls and compound pre-existing spiritual problems and deadness that we already have. And so understand that left to yourself, you can't come to Christ. You can't prepare yourself for grace. You cannot make yourself acceptable to God. Understand your natural wickedness and own it honestly. And therefore recognize how desperate is your dependence upon the grace of God. And our inability to do Anything good, our inability even to take a step towards good because of ourselves, all of this only serves to magnify that much more the grace of God in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to save sinners. Our inability magnifies the grace of God in the gospel. And this brings us to our second point this morning, which is eat the flesh of the Son of Man. Up in verse 35, Jesus had said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. In the beginning, in verse 48, Jesus picks up this metaphor and expounds upon it. He says, I am the bread of life. Now, earlier, up in verses 32 and 33, Jesus had contrasted himself as the true bread which came down out of heaven with the manna that the Old Testament fathers had eaten in the wilderness. And Jesus, again, picks up on this contrast that he had earlier established and he picks up on it again in verses 49 and 50. He says, Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. 
And again, Jesus says very much the same thing down in verse 58. He is the bread that came down so that the one who eats of that bread may live forever. And Jesus makes the metaphor even more explicit in verse 51. He says, The bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. The bread which he gives is his flesh. He gives his flesh up for the life of the world. As we know, Jesus offered himself on the cross as a sacrifice sufficient for the sins of the world. As John would later say, he himself is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Jesus came down from heaven and became incarnate for our salvation so that he could offer his flesh as a sacrifice for us so that we might eat the bread of life and live forever. And he did this. He did this for people who can't even come to him unless they are drawn by the Father. Jesus came down and died for people who can't even come unless God the Father draws them by teaching them. This is nothing less than the grace and love of God on full display, as Paul expressed it so well in Romans 5. For while we were still helpless, helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, let's think about things a little bit. We have the advantage on Jesus' original hearers. When we hear about Jesus giving his flesh for the life of the world, we think, or at least we should be thinking, about Jesus laying his life down as a sacrifice for us. We think about his body being given for us. We know the history contained in the Gospels. The original hearers, these Galileans, obviously did not know the, how the, the story of, of Jesus was, was going to continue all the way to the cross and resurrection. And they're confused. They, they go from grumbling, verse 41, to arguing, verse 52. And verse 52, they ask, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, asking the question as they do, they obviously are taking Jesus in a very literal and wooden way as opposed to figuratively. And they cannot fathom a way in which Jesus could possibly give them his flesh to eat. But notice that our Lord continues right on in that figurative strain in which he had been speaking, and he comes right back and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. Not even, not even their grumbling, their arguing, and their obvious uh, misunderstanding of what Jesus was saying turned Jesus back from this, from this figurative pattern of speech that he was using. Now, he not only speaks here of, of eating his flesh, but he also adds this figure of drinking his blood. And again, we, we have the advantage on the crowd here. We know what happens. We know that Jesus goes to the cross and sheds his blood. We know how the apostles speak of this. We know the words of Paul, Acts 20, 28, when he says that he speaks of the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Church of God which he purchased with his own blood. We can think of how Peter spoke of this. First Peter 1, when he says of, speaks of how we were redeemed not with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, 
but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And we know how John, in greeting the seven churches of Asia Minor, Revelation chapter 1, gives glory to Christ as him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. When we see Jesus talking about his blood, we, we understand the, the context of the New Testament and what this means, the blood of Christ being shed for our sins. And so we, we definitely have the advantage over those who first heard Jesus. But even with that, even with that, the metaphors that Jesus uses here can be a little tough to swallow, so to speak. Eat his flesh, drink his blood. But again, we need to view these things in light of what Jesus has already established up in verse 35. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. To come is to eat, because those who eat, uh, those who come will not hunger. To believe is to drink, because those who believe will not thirst. And Augustine put it so well in this point. He said, For to believe on him is to eat the living bread. He that believes eats. He is sated invisibly, because invisibly he is born again. A babe within, a new man within. Where he is made new, there he is satisfied with food. That, again, to believe is to eat. And therefore, what Jesus says in verse 54 is really no different from what he says in verse 47. To say that he who eats the flesh of Christ and drinks his blood has eternal life, as Jesus says in verse 54, is to say nothing other than what he's already said in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. And what this means is that Jesus is to our souls what food and drink are to our bodies. Food and drink give life to our bodies. They sustain our bodies But nevertheless, even with eating physical food and drinking physical drink, our bodies still die. Just like the Old Testament fathers in the wilderness who ate the manna. They ate and they died. The manna in the wilderness was a gracious gift of God, but it was not meant to save souls. It was merely a shadow that was pointing ahead to the true bread out of heaven, which gives life to the world. We receive that life which Jesus came to give by coming eating and drinking, which is to say we receive this life by believing. Indeed, we continue in this life by believing. And so Jesus says uh, in verse, verse 56, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. We continue to abide in Christ by eating and drinking, which is to say we continue to abide in Christ by believing. Now, we need to say that some have thought and thought wrongly that when Jesus speaks here of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, that Jesus is speaking here about the Lord's Supper. We can certainly see the similarities. For in the Supper, Jesus says, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. But the similarities notwithstanding, John 6 is dealing with faith. Jesus has already established the the metaphor uh, there for us in verse 35. And we would do well to consider the implications that would follow if we were to take eating and drinking here in John 6 as a reference to eating and drinking in the Lord's Supper. And if we took it in a crassly, literal way with zero caveats, the implication would be no one could be saved without 
partaking of the Lord's Supper. Isn't that what Jesus says? That, that it is uh, those who eat his flesh and drink his blood who have eternal life. That would be the implication of verse 53 if we took that in a crassly, literal way with zero caveats. Another implication would be that everyone who eats the Lord's Supper would necessarily have eternal life, regardless of repentance and faith. The point is that to take what Jesus says here in a woodenly, literal way with zero caveats and no nuance would not only contradict the metaphor which Jesus has already established, but it would also run counter to the rest of the Bible's teachings in regard of salvation. And so in light of that, it becomes clear that John 6 is not to be taken in that way in regard to the Lord's Supper. But nevertheless, we may say, as some have said, and I think rightly, that John 6 is not about the Lord's Supper, but rather that the Lord's Supper is about John 6. In other words, you, you see the difference. Well, the one view would say that John 6 is actually pointing ahead to the Lord's Supper and informing our, inform, uh, informing our minds about what happens in the Lord's Supper. The other view would say, no, actually... The Lord's Supper is pointing back to what Jesus described here in John 6, the life of faith. And, and I think that's right. Paul indicates to us, 1 Corinthians 10.16, that when we partake of the cup and eat of the bread, we are sharing the blood of Christ and sharing in the body of Christ. It's a, it's a communion. It's a fellowship in the body and blood of Christ. That doesn't mean that the, that the bread is changed to flesh or that the cup is changed into blood in the supper, but it does mean that when we come to the Lord's Supper in faith, we are communing with Christ and we are testifying to a great truth, namely the great truth that is expressed here in John 6, that our only hope is the body and blood of Jesus Christ which were given for us and given in our place, that his death on the cross is the means of our life, that we rely upon his body and blood which was sacrificed for us. We rely on that for the life of our souls. Through faith in him, Jesus gives life to our souls and sustains our souls, just as physical bodies are sustained with food and drink. Our bodies can't live without food, so also our souls can't live without Christ. And when we come to the Lord's Supper in faith... We're testifying to this great truth that our only hope is the body and blood of Jesus which he offered up as a sacrifice on our behalf. In our eating and drinking the ordinance, we proclaim that we are feeding on Christ by faith. And Christ testifies to us in the Lord's Supper that he is the only one who can feed our souls. He testifies to us that his body and blood were given for us, for the forgiveness of sins and for our eternal life. And in the ordinance rightly used, Christ nourishes and strengthens our faith because we are, uh, we're reminded of, of this great truth here in John chapter 6, that Christ's flesh was given for us. His blood was shed for us. And we remember that in the Lord's Supper in a, in a very tangible way. It's called a visible sermon by, by some. And so, again, I think we should think not so much that the Lord's, that John 6 points ahead to the Lord's Supper, so much as that what we do in the Lord's Supper points us back to John chapter 6. And this might be a fruitful meditation for you this week as we plan, Lord willing, to come to the Lord's Supper uh, next Sunday morning. Think, think about this. Think 
about what Jesus says here in John 6 about his body being given for us and his blood being shed for us, that we have no life in ourselves unless we partake of that, which is to say we have no life in ourselves unless we place our faith in Christ. And that's what we proclaim when we, when we come to the supper. Paul says you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're proclaiming that his death is our life. We have life because Jesus was crucified for us. Now, just a few things in conclusion. What, what do we do with, with all that we've seen this morning about our inability, and about eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Christ? What, what do we do with all of this this morning? Well, first, what do you do with this if you're here this morning and you have never yet trusted in Christ? Well, let me start by telling you what you must not do with this passage of Scripture that we've looked at this morning. You must not use what Jesus says about your inability as an excuse for continuing on in your sins. You must not just say to yourself, well, Jesus says I can't come, so I won't come. To say such a thing is to show your heart, and to show that your heart really wants nothing to do with Christ, and you bear responsibility for that, as for all of your other sins. The truth of the matter is that Jesus refuses no one who truly desires to come to him. Indeed, he commands and invites all who hear his gospel to come to him. That's the command of the gospel, is to repent and to believe in him. The fact that many do not come is not the fault of the gospel, nor is it the fault of Christ who is offered in the gospel. The blame for all who will not come lies wholly on they themselves. It's not that they want to come but are somehow prevented from coming. They cannot come because they will not come, because they don't want to come and have no desire to come. And so let no one use Jesus' teaching about our inability in a twisted and perverse way. After all, John's purpose in writing this gospel, as he tells us in John 20, 31, is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why John wrote this gospel, not to keep you back from Jesus, but so that you would believe in Jesus. The invitation is open. Come to Christ, the one who comes to him, he will not cast out. You've been sitting this morning under the preaching of the word of God, and this is the ordinary means by which God draws men and women to Jesus. Jesus says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. It's my hope and prayer that what you have heard this morning, you have heard and you have learned from the Father by means of his word, and that now this day you are among those who have been taught of God, and that the Holy Spirit has brought the conviction of God's truth to your heart. It's my hope that today you come to Christ because God the Father has drawn you by the preaching of his word, that God has taught you and therefore you come. You come because you desire to come, because you've been given a new heart by the Holy Spirit as he works in connection with the word of God. The invitation is open. John would later say it this way in Revelation 22. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. That's the gospel invitation right there. And if you come, it will be evidence that you are drawn by the Father, that you've been given by the Father to the Son. So come to Christ and he will never cast you out. Come to Christ and he will not lose you. Come to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Come to Christ for peace with God. Come to Christ and he will preserve you and raise you up incorruptible and immortal on the last day. So repent and believe today. Eat 
Christ's flesh and drink his blood today by believing on him. Don't wait. If you have questions, you can talk to me. You can talk to another Christian whom you know. We would love to tell you more about how you can believe upon Christ. And if you're here this morning as a Christian, as someone who has already tasted the bread of life, someone who has eaten Christ's flesh and drank his blood, keep coming to him. Keep eating. Which is to say, keep believing. This is the means by which we abide in him, as Jesus himself says in verse 56. And so, in other words, continue to draw your soul's life from Jesus. Don't look to any other sources for life. The other sources bring death and not life. Christ alone brings life to your soul, and so keep looking to him. Keep abiding in him and rejoice. Rejoice in his great grace. Rejoice that Christ has come down and has given his flesh and blood on the cross for you and for the life of the world. Rejoice that the Father has in fact taught you and drawn you to Christ. Rejoice that your inability has been overcome by the grace of God. And give all praise and glory to him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we are reminded of our great sinfulness and we are reminded also of your great love that though we could do nothing to bring ourselves to you and present ourselves before you, yet you have worked out so great a plan of salvation, sending Christ into the world and teaching those whom you have given to Christ by your word, and therefore drawing them to Christ. Lord, we praise you for your great plan of salvation for hardened sinners like us. Lord, we pray that you would help us, that we would continue to abide in Christ day by day. We praise you and thank you for him. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.